Hi friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And uh, this one, I am so excited for you to hear this interview. I'm so excited I'm recording an intro to this interview, so just so I can talk about the interview before you actually hear the interview. A couple things real quick. New book comes out March 8th. My new book is called How to Be Here, and uh, you'll be able to get it anywhere. You can, get it, you can pre-order it right now. And then I'm going to go on tour for the book, and we're going to go all over the country and do all-day Saturday events. So I'm going to do Friday night signings in bookstores, and then the next day there'll be an all-day event. You can get tickets to that at robbell.com. We're renting art galleries and dance halls and event spaces and because I'd like to spend the whole day with you. And we'll start with some of the ideas in the book, and then we will go all over the place. And uh, I'm just so excited because so many of you are like, you should come do one of those one or two days in my city. So that's what we're trying to do. And uh, the first leg will run March through the end of June. And um, then we'll go from there. So all that is happening. You can get the book now and pre-order it, all that. Um, Memorial Day, May 30th, my beloved friend Elizabeth Gilbert and I, Elizabeth Gilbert of Eat, Pray, Love, Big Magic, Signature of All Things, she and I are going to do an event at Wanderlust Hollywood, which is a, a big yoga studio here in Hollywood. And we're going to sit side by side on stools and we're going to go all day. We're going to talk about fear, joy, creativity, finding your voice. Uh, and um, so it's one day with Rob Bell with special guest Liz Gilbert. And you can get your tickets at robbell.com. And then if you happen to be in the Los Angeles area at the end of March. Uh, Pete Holmes and I, renowned comic Pete Holmes and I, will be doing another of our two-man shows at Largo on Tuesday the 29th, and you can get uh, tickets at largo-la.com. So those are some things that are coming up, but right now I am going to play this interview for you that I got to do. You know, when you think of like the ancient spiritual tradition or uh, the wisdom tradition. You picture the guru, the yogi, the master teacher, the sage, the saint. You picture this person who they're so, they're so grounded. They're so in the flow. They're, they are so tuned in, whatever language you want to use. Um, they walk with God. You know, different traditions have different language for it, but I'm sure you've had experiences where you were with somebody and you literally just want to sit at their feet and soak in their presence. Um, and a number of years ago, I read this book called The Echo of the Soul by this Scottish uh, mystic teacher, minister, guru. I, um, I, the book was so... Like, who, who wrote this? Um, his name was John Philip Newell. And uh, so he'd written this book, The Echo of the Soul. He's written a number of books, including a new book called The Rebirthing of God. <laughs> How's that for a title? Um, but I got to meet him a little while ago, and it was exactly like I actually thought it would be. Um, I just found myself I just asking question after question after question, feeling like I was in the presence of a rare rare human being. And then the other day he came over to my house. Um, and I, I got to record, um, 
what would have been exactly the conversation we probably would have had if we would have gone out to eat. But um, I thought I need to record this because I have to tell my my podcast friends about this. So, um, and by the way, do you ever have experiences where you're like, how did my life get, how did we get here where I could have John Philip Newell in my house and we could have this conversation and I could be learning and and be so blessed by another human being? Um, and I think you'll pick that up uh, pretty quickly in this interview that um, this is somebody yeah, like this is like the village elder, you know what I mean? The person that you you lean on, that you go to, that you listen, like a north star. Um, so uh, it's it it just fills me with such gratitude. It's such a humbling thing that I get to have a conversation with somebody like that. I get to record it, and then I get to share it with you. So um, I don't normally record an intro to an interview, but this one is just so many of them are so. Um, incredible for me, but this one I felt like I just need to say, John Philip Newell in the back house on the Robcast. Good Lord, how great is this? So here you go. Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And today I have with me the great John Philip Newell. Welcome, John Philip Newell. Thank you, Rob. Good to All be the you. way from Scotland. Um, I first heard about you when somebody gave me this book of yours, Echo of the Soul, which I am holding in my hand now. And I was like, who is this who has written this extraordinary book? So I would love to dive into the book. But first, um, you grew up in Canada? Born in Canada. And uh, my father was from Ireland. And my mother is of Scottish descent. So we were... Uh, connected to family in Ireland and, and Scotland, but Canada was my place of primary and secondary school education. And then I went to Scotland to study theology. Did it feel like going home? Yeah, in, in many ways it did. Uh, I think it was important for me as a young man, also with a, a father who was very well known in conservative uh, evangelical circles in Canada. It was, I think, it was important for me to have an Atlantic uh, distance so that I could explore and study theology in a way that was quite free from from family inheritance. Not not that he was ever heavy-handed in t- in terms of how I pursued my my knowing and my my study, but it was important to have that bit of distance. I think. And what? What was your area of study? Uh, like when I read a book like Echo of the Soul, I'm like, where is this? Where have they been that they could write this? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> do you ever do that? You read something and you're like, what has worked or influenced this person to have shaped this kind of voice? Yeah. For me, the, the great sense of homecoming uh, while I was studying theology was discovering this stream of spirituality within our Christian inheritance that we that we now refer to as Celtic spirituality. And that's a modern term, of course, but we use it to refer to a distinct stream of spirituality that came to birth in the second century and following in, in the Celtic territory of ancient Gaul and then in Ireland and Scotland. And this this was a stream of spirituality that was free from uh, the 
what later developed as a more imperial form of Christianity. Once Christianity got in bed with empire, uh, mm. there was there was a, a sense that some of the truths of the Christian inheritance were considered inconvenient to to empire. Uh, like like what? <laughs> I totally understand. Like what? A, a couple a couple of sort of primary characteristics. One was this belief that what is deepest in every human being is is the sacred light of God or the image of God or the likeness of God. Uh, that always worries empire because if the masses are where the light of God is, if the well of wisdom is seen as deep within the people, then uh, empire can't so easily just tell the people what to believe or tell the people what to do. And we, we, we see this conflict playing itself out uh, at, at critical points of conflict between the imperial mission of the church from the fourth century onwards and, and the Celtic Christian mission. Uh, so the, the wisdom piece, where is wisdom to be found, uh, was one of those areas of conflict. Another area of conflict was the Celtic uh, tradition talking about the sacredness of the earth. Um, so again, we can't do in whatever we want to the earth. Uh, the Celtic mission was in encouraging us into a, a reverencing of how we handle the creatures and how we handle the body and matter of the earth. And all of these uh, threads are very interconnected, of course, but one of the other big pieces was the way in which the Celtic tradition uh, reverenced the sacredness of the feminine. So we find patterns of women in leadership uh, St. Bridget, for instance, the great 5th century Irish saint, was the head of a double monastery of men and women, and she had, she had bishops sort of under, under her authority. Mm. And uh, when Christianity became the imperial religion of Rome, uh, th there was a desire to subordinate the feminine, and, and they felt quite threatened by the practice that was happening out at, out at the edge of the earth as, as Ireland and Scotland was considered. It's fascinating. These are all very, very modern issues. Yes. The number of people who are like, where did it all go wrong? Why has there been such a dominant male voice? Why has there been such a, uh, an abuse of the earth? Uh, and second century you see the roots of some of these problems. Yes, and uh, that that's what's been very exciting for me. I mean, I was trained uh, as a historical theologian. I, I was fascinated in the history of the unfolding of certain movements and streams. Uh, but my real interest is the heart of this moment in time. And so what I find myself doing is drawing from aspects of our inheritance and saying, here's some lost treasure for us today. Uh, and that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to bring some of this ancient perspective to the well-being, not only of the Christian household, but uh, uh, asking how we can, as a Christian household, be part of healing work and peacemaking work and care for the earth work in our world. It's so... I assume you... I mean, just makes your head spin... Uh, the respect for women in the sacred feminine, the acknowledgement of the goodness of people, the light, the divine spark, um, the care for the earth, 
are considered now, I mean, you must laugh, very progressive of the moment ahead of the curve uh, truths that are actually very, very old. Yes. I love that saying, that phrase that we find used by the Jewish mystics sometimes when they speak of new ancient words, new yes. a- new ancient wisdom. Uh, uh, it's this recognition that some of these wisdoms uh, are deep within our inheritance, uh, but often they, they've been smothered over or pushed yeah. out to the, the edge. And what we can be part of is, is uh, a rising again of, of ancient wisdom, speaking ancient wisdom in, in new and radical ways for, for today. So you, you became a, a priest, minister, pastor. Where did all this lead you? I, uh, I studied theology primarily thinking that what I wanted to do was, was work in and uh, research through and, and delve more into uh, the, the academic side of, of theology. And uh, during, during that time, uh, my, my PhD uh, work was on a Scottish heretic from the 19th century who uh, was unanimously deposed from the Church of Scotland uh, for teaching that everything is essentially sacred. I mean, that you know, that's dangerous. <laughs> everything is spiritual, whoa. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, he, was, he was very important to me. At the end of my three years of delving into this man, Alexander Scott, uh, I was I was dreaming about him, and I was having conversations in my dream life. What years did he live? He lived between 1805 and 1861, I think. It and was. his premise was everything is sacred. Everything is essentially sacred, uh, and that 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 was seen as pushing the boundaries uh, uh, because the, uh, the Scottish Christianity, especially at that stage, was was in a very Calvinistic mode. And, and to, for those who don't, who would be brand new to this discussion, that would, which I think, I mean, a Calvinistic would have influenced lots of what people would see in the Western world. How would you explain that to somebody who hasn't heard that? Well, <clears throat> very central in the Calvinistic system is the doctrine of original sin. So that, that in a sense, is the starting point. It wants to say that, uh, that uh, at the heart of every human being is is what is opposed to God, uh, whereas the, the Celtic stream is wanting to say that what is deepest or what is most essential in every, every human, human being is of God. Uh, so uh, I love that. That's yeah, so I mean, <laughs> well said. So, I mean, the, you know, the doctrine of original sin, uh, I describe as our obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, we can hardly get through a liturgy. We can hardly get through a, a hymn. Right. Uh, without going on about what shitbags we are, and uh, it, you know, if 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 every time I entered the presence of my wife, I felt I had to go on about how horrible I was. Uh, I mean, she might like it once, yeah. but but if I did it every time I entered into her presence, it, it it would be a pretty sick relationship. And I think that that's part of what we've been doing through this obsession with uh, the doctrine of original sin. Uh, I mean, having said that, uh, this is not to say that the Celtic Christian tradition uh, uh, treats falseness lightly. 
and it's not naive about our capacity for the most horrendous uh, faithlessness and falseness towards one another. Correct. Uh, and in fact, it's quite a rigorously penitential tradition, <coughs> but uh, it it uh, sees that what is deepest in us is of God. So any repentance work is about returning to what is deepest in us. It's not about becoming something, striving to become right, something other right, than ourselves. Right, 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 There is your true self mm. that reflects the divine image. Mm. And you, perhaps, like all of us, have done some things to disrupt or destroy the shalom. Mm. But that your true self is good. Mm. That, whew, it's so fascinating to me how your work in historical theology and Alexander Scott, is that correct? Yeah. How all of these, and Celtic spirituality is all right now what everybody's talking about. Mm. It's mm. just, so then um, then you became a minister? So Yes, I, so I became a, a minister of the Church of Scotland, which is the national church in, in Scotland. And uh, I, I never ended up in a, in a straightforward Church of Scotland parish situation. I my first job after uh, the PhD was to do university chaplaincy work uh, for six years, and and I loved that. I loved that combination of um, doing a bit of teaching in the in the university context, but giving most of my energy to the developing of a of a, a community that that rooted its life in the practice of prayer and meditation and saw our engagement with social issues or justice issues as as com coming out of a, of a spirituality of presence. It's interesting. I love Richard Rohr's organization, the Center for Action and Contemplation. Mm. It's interesting to me how many of the meditative and contemplative communities, um, often that leads to a very vibrant activism. Yes. I I think that that that's right. I mean, I uh, speaking personally, I I would say that very early on in my uh, university life and formation, I had a very keen sense of uh, issues around justice making and peacemaking, and <clears throat> found myself enormously attracted to uh, nonviolence as as a very significant energy for real change and transformation in the world. Uh, but uh, I, I also saw that, that, that there's a, a capacity for, for burning out in social activism uh, when, when it is not rooted in a contemplative practice. And I, and I think that that's what someone like Richard Rohr, but also you know, the great Thomas Merton, American prophet in many ways for peace, peacemaking, he saw just how important it is to to root our our sense of action in a sustainable practice of contemplative prayer. It's so interesting to me. If the tradition starts with be still, you're loved, there's nothing to prove. Yeah. You are a child of the divine. Everything's all right with the universe, even if it isn't. Yes. That if the tradition begins with grace upon grace upon grace, it grounds people in something that creates this wellspring within the heart uh, that then actually 
people do come out of that with tremendous energies to be brave and courageous and nonviolent. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think Thomas Merton maybe uh, articulates it uh, more succinctly than any great teacher in the in the modern Christian household, um, because he's he's very perceptive of of uh, what what our ego does. Uh, and the, he's not putting down the ego. The, the ego is our uh, gift, uh, our faculty of knowing. It's our faculty of uh, consciousness and of choosing. But uh, he's very perceptive to the way in which the ego is forever wanting to be, to claim center ground. And uh, he sees just how puny the ego strength is at the end of the day and how how much the uh, ego strength is just not up to the big challenges in our world today. And um, I would say that, that that is true not just at the individual level, but also at the national level. I mean, think of the enormous ego of, of our nations, of the American empire, of the British empire, massive egos that, that uh, end up thinking that the rest of the world is there to, in fact, serve serve our you know ego center yes. or th- or think of the enormous ego of the human species which has pretended that the rest of creation the rest of the universe exists for our well-being yes to serve us um and uh, so whether it's the individual the pre- pretending that the individual ego is is the center or the national ego or the species ego um, and what Merton sees very clearly, and I, 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 he, he so beautifully articulates it, is, is this realization that if we're serious about the work of transformation in our world, then we, we have within us uh, resources, strengths, wisdom, creativity, uh, that, is, that is not just the domain of the ego. In fact, the only way to access the, this great wellspring of creativity and wisdom and passion is by doing the work, uh, both individually but in community, of dying to the way in which the ego claims center ground. Um, and uh, I was thinking just just two days ago, I was remembering Thomas Merton's um, uh, Epiphany moment. He, I mean, he was already considered a great teacher in 1958. Already, his material had been read by millions of people, and he's in Louisville, Kentucky, meeting with his publisher. And on the way home, he's walking through the streets of Louisville. He comes to the corner of Fourth and Walnut Street, and suddenly he uh, is aware that everyone around him is shining. He says, "Everyone's just sort of shining like the sun." And he is aware that although he doesn't know any of these people, he realizes that he loves them, that their essence is, is of God. And he then goes on to say, if we were to see this way all the time, there would be no more war, there would be no more hatred, there would be no more cruelty, there would be no more greed. And then he finishes his reflection by saying, I suppose the, the only problem with this way of seeing, he said, is that we might want to fall down and worship one another. Mm. Uh, and, um, and, you know, he concludes it's worth taking that risk because the risk of adoring one another is much greater, um, much better 
than the risk of ignoring one another uh, or harming one another or exploiting one another or hating one another. So good. So good. Okay, so let's talk about this book. What did your, this book, Echo of the Soul, came out, the subtitle is The Sacredness of the Human Body. How long did this come out? <clears throat> I think that was in the late uh, late 90s. Or maybe it was around 2000. And was this book in you for years? Yes, it was. And uh, we've been talking a bit about the Celtic stream of yeah. spirituality and my, my, that part of my inheritance. Um, I, I became fascinated by some of the resonances between uh, Celtic spirituality and, and uh, the mystic uh, Jewish uh, stream. And I noted that both these traditions were showing great reverence for the body of the earth, uh, but also for the human body. Uh, and uh, I, I so love the sort of robust sense of, of the goodness of the earth and yes. the goodness of the human body that we get in, in, in um, the, the Jewish stream of inheritance. And we find some of that also in the, in the Celtic world. Um, I was um, doing an interfaith dialogue last year in Richmond, Virginia, with uh, a rabbi and a Muslim imam, and I was on the panel as the Christian teacher. And uh, at one stage in the evening, someone asked from the floor, they said, uh, would you talk about the, uh, the problem of original sin? And uh, I mean, this this is a this is a Christian problem. This is not a Jewish problem <laughs> right. or a Muslim. But that's not where they start. They they yeah. start with the essential sacredness of the newborn child. And uh, but the rabbi was the first to respond, and he said, uh, "Original sin." He said um, that to most Jews would mean that was a really original sin. That was <laughs> that was <laughs> no one has done that before. <laughs> that was a really creative sin. Have you seen Eddie Izzard, <laughs> the British comedian? Who does a whole thing on that? No, oh, you I, poked uh, out your eye with a badger. Oh, that's original. <laughs> he has a whole thing on things no one has done before. Well done. Very original. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the Jewish, uh, you know, it has a, a wonderfully robust uh, yes. and healthy sense of the senses and of our physicalness and of the essential sacredness of our sexual energies. And I, I mean, it's been it's been tragic the uh, undermining of of belief in in the sacredness of the human body, and so much doubt associated with our sexual energy as well, and and that that in part is what has wreaked havoc uh, uh, in not only in our our cult, broader culture at times, but also in our religious inheritance. This somehow. Uh, denying of the sacredness of of our sexual energies uh, and uh, so i i noticed the the sort of convergence of jewish wisdom about yes. the body and celtic wisdom about the body and uh, echo of the soul is really an attempt to allow these two traditions to um to uh, feed one another and to flourish uh, T together, um, so I I take this Jewish understanding of of th that's very similar to the Eastern notion of chakras of of 
special energy centers in the body. But the, the Jewish tradition calls it uh, sephirot or, or sapphires or shinings of God that can be found in, within the human body. So that there are particular shinings like the center of the forehead, which is the sh sort of shining of wisdom, or uh, the arms, which, which are seen as shining of strength on the one hand linked with love on the other and how we we so need to hold strength and love together so that the shadow side of strength doesn't dominate and and the uh, the heart as as the sort of shining of of beauty in us and the genitals as the shining of of creativity and our god-given capacity to bring into being what has never been before so i use, i i allow the jewish understanding of shinings in the body uh, to be the, the sort of framework through which I visit every part of our physicalness and see uh, and reflect on how uh, our spiritual energies and our physical energies are, are so interwoven. I, and like in the introduction, I knew this book was special when there's there's more packed, I underlined more of the introduction than I do most whole books. <laughs> But you have this line in Jewish belief, the body is the soul in its outward form. Mm. Because I think for, for many people, especially in the Western world, you have this physical body and then all the really magical, important stuff is sort of jammed in it. Yes. Um, yes. And in there, the body and the soul are... Uh, can you say more about that? The body is the soul in its outward form. It's uh, one of the reasons I chose the the title Echo of the Soul, uh, and this is this is something that one of the Celtic teachers said about the body being an echo of the soul, and it's very similar to what the Jewish tradition is saying when it says the, the body is the soul in its outward form. Mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, to say that the body is the soul in its outward form or to say that the body is an echo of the soul is to say... Yes, the body is passing. Um, it comes and, and it will go and it will return to the earth. Uh, so let's not live in a way that pretends that this, this is not an echo. It, it's, it, it's going. Uh, but let's live in a way that, that we really pay attention to what we find in the body because it is an expression of, of the soul. And uh, one of the other uh, images that comes across in the Celtic world is that the soul is not in the body, the body is in the soul. Um, so so yes. the, this, this sense that, that the, sh the shining uh, around the human body, uh, you know, the shining in your eyes, is, is, is a, a, a shining that is not just physical, it, 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 it is held within this much deeper energy. And this is what we're we're being invited to pay attention to. And I think if we see this shining in one another's eyes, or if we see this shining in one another's body, and if we see it in in one another's sexuality, then we're we're being called to reverence it, not to abuse it, not to use it, um, um, but to reverence it. You say uh, that. The Garden of Eden is our place of deepest identity. It is a dimension within us from which we have been divorced. Yes. Which I love. You take this Genesis poem and you read it as a, a telling of where we are 
Our place of profoundest identity has not been destroyed. Rather, we have become fugitives from it. Yes. It's so good. And Maybe we should just read passages and just pause. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I was doing something a couple of months ago with a, a group of Dominican, organized by a group of Dominican sisters. Uh, Love them Dominicans. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the sisters was telling me that she's had a, a sort of spiritual reading group. Uh, and uh, they, the book that they've been on for a while is my most recent book, The Rebirthing of God, Christianity, Struggle for New Beginnings. And she says, you know what we, we do every week when we get together, and this is just about 25 people, they get together and, and uh, the leader of the group begins to meditatively read, uh, slowly, meaningfully read, and after a paragraph, will stop, and sometimes they just go into silence for a while. Uh, but it's also an opportunity for people to say, yeah, you know, these words uh, release this awareness in me or that awareness. And so, so sometimes there's conversation. And she said, um, you know how long we've been sort of using this book of yours? <laughs> we, we've, uh, we've been studying for uh, over six months, and we've only got past chapter three. <laughs> yes, that was exactly my experience of this book. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there is something to be said for reading really slowly. I mean, I can't, I can't read anything but slowly. I'm a really slow reader. I'm always amazed at these people that can consume, you know, a book a day or something. But I think there's a lot to be said for um, for slowing down, but also to do it together, you know, to do it with other people. Yes. And I think we're living in a time of immense loneliness or exile for many of yeah. our brothers and sisters who were born into the Christian household and who don't on a Sunday find themselves uh, in community, praying, studying, reflecting with others. Um, because often uh, the the fare that is being dished up uh, is is not feeding their souls or is not speaking profoundly into this moment in time. I love, <laughs> I love your description of why lots of people don't go to church. The fare that is being dished up. <laughs> You say it with such elegance. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, it, I mean, it's a sad time. It's a, t it's a time of exile for many of us. And many of us are really hungry for, uh, for a community with whom to reflect and pray and celebrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of, one of the things that most drives me in my work is simply, and even doing this broadcast, is to let people know they're not alone. Yeah. That the stirrings within them, lots of us have, and they're actually not new. Yes. You can find in this deep, rich, wide stream going back, literally, like you're saying, 2,000 years and past that. Um, you say here, redemption is about being reconnected to our true self. Mm. How do you talk? Because I'm so interested when I go around and talk and people ask questions, how many people ask a question? But they know the answer to it. Yeah. There, there is an inner wisdom. I call it the Christ wisdom. Is yes. in them. They actually know the answer. They just need somebody. Yeah. To nod and say, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I always think of that in terms of the true self. Like you have a true self that knows the next step here. Yeah. 
Yeah. How how do you talk about the true self and what it is and how it works and how we've become disconnected from it? And mm. a number of years ago, I was giving a talk in Lynchburg, Virginia, at a church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Not, <laughs> I was going to say I, not that church in Lynchburg. That's like the capital of. <laughs> That's the capital of certainty. <laughs> That's right, and uh, I mean, in the in the uh, public talk that I was giving, uh, I was touching on this this theme of of being made in the image of God and speaking about the the newborn child uh, as celebrated in the Celtic tradition, it was said when we look into the face of a newborn child, we're looking into the face of God, freshly born among us. Mm. And uh, I, mean, I, I, I need to share with you, um, uh, just over a week ago, my first granddaughter, grandchild was born. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. I mean, uh, and you know, I, I got to hold her just hours after mm. she was born. And she looked with such calmness into my eyes and i uh, i i felt uh, that that it was uh, that it was god looking into my eyes it was from this place of eternity that she was looking into me beautiful gift and um and this is one of the things that we see in the celtic tradition it celebrates the newborn child as gift from god sacred gift and uh, and as a sort of fresh embodiment of God among us, and uh, I was sort of exploring some of these themes. And at the end of the talk, a woman in her eighties came very purposefully up the central aisle, and she was walking with such s sort of formidable sort of uh, determination. Uh, and uh, I noticed she had a copy of my book, listening for the heartbeat of God, in her hand. And the naughty boy in me thought, she's going to hit me over the head with that book. I mean, she's coming up so certainly that, you know, she looks like she wants to disagree with me. Uh, but I was quite wrong. When she got up to the front, she opened the copy of the book and said, I want to show you what I wrote in this book of yours after I read it. And inside she had written, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, so, so often I, I wish I had asked her for that copy of, of, of the book because uh, I think that that's what we do experience at these critical turning points in our lives. Uh, often when ancient wisdom that has been lost or cut off within our tradition uh, f finds its way of resurrection, finds a new coming coming forth. And when we, when we receive uh, such, such such glimpses of deep knowing, and that is about the sacredness of the newborn child. Uh, our deep response is, I knew that, um, but I I haven't necessarily heard it heard it or the the religious tradition that that I've uh, been reared in um, wasn't wasn't saying that, uh, and that that's one of the reasons why I have. Um, come to believe that the 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 real role of a teacher um, and my I see my role as a, in a as a wandering teacher is uh, is to articulate what people already know at a deep level so that 
the, the sounding of truths that I'm trying to serve or trying to be part of is, is to actually release these uh, aha, uh, these epiphany moments, these uh, such as this dear old woman, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Um, and I think that's the greatest thing that, that we can do for one another um, uh, w when we have a teaching charism or a teaching gift to see we're not, we're not taking something that isn't in our listeners and trying to sort of deposit it. Exactly. Uh, our role is to, is to find these ways to articulate uh, up into awareness what, what's already there. Oh, so good. I love it when people say, I've been saying that for years. I've been <laughs> thinking that for a decade. Yeah. Yes, good. Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> um, and then you, I mean, I love, I even got out a highlighter, which I never do. Spirituality paid, it's like we're still in the intro. We're still <laughs> in the Roman numerals of this book. Spirituality does not consist, you write, of being told what to do. It consists of being reminded of who we are. Only when we know who we are will we be clear about what we should do. Mm. So, so good. I uh, I've actually thought about this book for people who, um, like it, like this. This is the kind of book where I think get some friends, have a good meal. Read in this case like two lines, <laughs> and four hours later go home and come back <laughs> later. Um, you talk about the crown of the head, which I found fascinating here, and the power of the image of the crown of a head. That what cannot be said about us is always greater than anything that can be said. Mm. Can you talk a bit about the the crown of the head and this idea of what can be said about us is always greater than anything that can mm. be said? Uh, the the um. A, a great Jewish teacher that I've been uh, diving back into recently is uh, Martin Buber. Love him. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. I know. And, uh, he, you know, the the title of his most seminal work, I and Thou, uh, it really is exploring this theme and... Um, uh, I was on I was on an airplane um, a couple of months ago, flying into Atlanta, Georgia, and normally w when I get on airplanes, I uh, I use it as a time of solitude, um, and uh, I've d I've mastered this technique of being able to say hello um, <laughs> graciously to the person seated next to me, uh, and that hello recognizes their presence but also says to them this will be the last word that you receive from me until the <laughs> until the end of the flight <laughs> uh, and I mean uh, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not always proud of ne needing such solitude but anyway that it's part of keeping the pace but I, in October I was I was on a flight and I'm so glad I didn't stick by that that mm -hmm. practice of, of of not engaging but it wasn't really at my initiative. It, I I was on a um, in a seat and neat, seat, seated next to me was um, a young woman that I thought was from India. It turned out she was from Nepal. But I had on my sheet on my uh, lap some notes uh, of a talk I was going to be giving that night 
uh, based on Martin Buber's I and Thou. And uh, shortly after takeoff, I had fallen asleep. And, um, and when I woke up, this uh, young uh, Hindu woman uh, from Nepal next to me uh, tapped me on the, on the arm. And now she was going to address a man. So, uh, uh, so she had pulled the veil over her face. So all I could see were these beautiful brown eyes. And, and she said, um, I have a question for you. And she said, um, what does I am who I am mean? She had, she had seen this sort of quotation from that Exodus uh, story of Moses asking the presence in the burning bush, uh, what is your name? How, you know, who should I tell my people I have encountered in the burning bush? And the answer is, I am who I am. So, uh, so here I, I was given this opportunity to try to express simply uh, this great mystery at the heart of our Jewish Christian inheritance, and that is God revealing himself or herself not through a name, in fact, refusing a name, uh, but saying just, I am who I am. I shall be who I shall be. I have been who I have been. Uh, so this refusal to be uh, defined by either definition or name. So I, I said to the, the, the young woman, um, you know, you are a woman and uh, you are a daughter and you are um, from, you are uh, from Nepal and you are a Hindu. And I said, all of these things, you, you are probably proud to say about yourself. Um, but I said, um, but you, are all, you will always be more than this. And what you are essentially cannot be named. You're not just a gender. You're not just a, a nationality. You're not just a religion. You are of the one who, uh, who refuses um, the name of definition. And she said, um, but, who, but who am I? Uh, my, my parents tell me what I am. They, they tell me to listen to the Hindu priest who tells me who I am. But who am I? Um, and uh, so I pointed down at this other word uh, on, on the paper in front of me. And that is the word thou. Um, and I said, do you know what that, this word means? And her English wasn't wasn't good enough for her to immediately understand. And, and I said, thou is the word that I would use if I was speaking right into the very heart of your being to try to address the, that part of you that is not just a woman, not just a daughter, not just uh, a nationality, not just a religion. And uh, her eyes began to tear up, these beautiful brown eyes um, behind the, the veil. And then she, she said to me, you know, I've just come to America. I've just arrived today. I've come from Nepal. I've had to leave my family. I was uh, married two months ago and my husband you know, returned to the States to be with his family. And I'm coming and, and I'm, I'm so overwhelmed by, well, who, who am I? Um, and, uh, and I said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a Christian teacher. And, um, and one of the things that Jesus often says after he teaches something, he says to his listeners, uh, decide for yourselves what is true. So I said, you know, listen to your parents, listen to your Hindu inheritance, uh, listen to these, this wise part of your inheritance, but always um, 
this is something you must ask. Who, who am I and what, what is my real essence? And uh, I said, uh, her, na her name is Pushpa. And uh, I said, uh, Pushpa, tomorrow morning when I do my morning meditation and prayer, I'm going to ask a blessing for, for you. And um, she looked right at me and said, and I bless you. <laughs> and in that moment, I, I knew that I was being blessed by that part of her that bears no name, that part of her that is of the I am who I am. Mm. So good. So good. Well, we could continue going through this book, and we're only through three pages. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a whole other book of yours here that I've, I'm thinking we're going to have to do another one of these at some point. Mm. Either I'll come to Scotland or you'll Great. come back through here. Okay, you come and to we'll Scotland. And we'll do one. <laughs> because your book, The Rebirthing of God, I just so many people need to know about this book. Mm. So um, we'll do that at a later date. Great. I look forward to it. I, I'm so glad you came by the back house. Thank you. And um, hopefully next time I'll see you in Scotland. I'll Thank have the same get-up with me here, the same Great. equipment. We'll do it again. Great. You've uh, really deeply inspired me and moved me. And I want everybody listening um, to, in, to meet you, to gather around your books and ideas, because I think you're really helping us see where the whole thing's headed. And that's a very, very, very meaningful thing. Thank you, Rob. Many blessings to you. All right, friends. That is John Philip Newell. This is, we're going to do more with him, right? You're feeling that, right? <laughs> Grace and peace, everybody.